Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And when we speak of the ordination of a pastor, you're not surprised to hear that biblical reference called out. I will be speaking on the subject of preach the word. Preach the word. We'll depart from the series on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get back to that, Lord willing, very soon. But this is from 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll read the first six verses together. I have often referred to this passage and to the entire second epistle. To Timothy, Paul's second epistle, his last recorded words, and perhaps the last letter he ever wrote, we don't know. But I've often referred to it as his swan song. Um, I read up on that. Probably a swan does not really sing right before it dies. But um, tradition says it does and says its most beautiful song is the last one. So this is a swan song, Paul's swan song to Timothy. I'm preaching this for two purposes. I'll read the text in a moment. First of all, I do want to give what amounts to a charge to Brother Thomas, who's here today, and uh, all ears taking it in, being ordained to the gospel ministry this evening. This is a big deal, folks. (laughs) This is what the church is all about. Uh, The effectiveness of a church, have you thought about this? And this is not original with me. I don't know who said it. I've heard some names associated. I don't know who said it to begin with. But the gauge of the effectiveness of a church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. And we are sending this man up to the Big Apple. I also wish to remind all of us that the temptation as we get deeper into the end times, the last days, we're already in them, but the temptation will grow stronger and stronger to do what Paul termed to have itching ears. Now, some of you may have ears that itch naturally, and uh, mine kind of do. But the Bible says itching ears refer to people that just want to hear certain things, positive things. They turn to some kind of cute, novel, popular preaching and teaching that scratches their itch, but it leaves their hearts untouched, and for the most part, their lives unchanged. I'll just say right at the outset of my message today, may God spare us from that. We are plagued with an epidemic of that in America. The fourth and final chapter of Paul's second letter to Timothy is by far the most touching as he writes to his beloved son in the faith, his protege. Timothy is probably in his 30s, a pastor in the city of Ephesus, which was a major city, a Roman colony. He's passing the baton to Timothy. He knows that his own martyrdom, his loosing, as he refers to it in verse 6, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my loosing, my departure is at hand. He's staring death in the face. He longs for Timothy to take up his prophetic mantle 
and fight the good fight of faith and finish strong. But if you don't catch this, you're going to miss the importance of the message today. He's worried about Timothy. As much as he loves him and as great an influence, as close a relationship as they have, he's worried to death about Timothy. With that in mind, let's read these first six verses. Chapter 4, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, teaching. For the time will come, and may I suggest to you it's here, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teaching teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Maybe your Bible translation says myths. And then his direct words personally to Timothy, but watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Brother Jan will address that tonight. Make full proof of thy ministry. And the verse that I referenced already, for I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure, my loosing, is at hand. And I'll stop there, though we usually, the most familiar verses are 7 and 8. But the first six verses comprise the subject that I wish to address this morning. Preach the Word. This is not just for Thomas. There's a real application for all of us. Paul's last epistle to Timothy is filled with urgent commands, even before we get to this one, in the foregoing chapters. Let me just review them briefly so we can appreciate the next step with that command, preach the Word. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, hold fast the form of sound words. Hold fast the form of sound words. That literally means retain the standard. Retain the standard. Timothy, stay true to the outline of truth that you have received from me. It doesn't mean that Timothy is just to regurgitate everything the Apostle Paul said. No, his teaching was to reflect his own personality and vocabulary. God made him an individual. God doesn't want us to plagiarize. But Timothy, stay true to the outline of truth that you have received from me. The second thing he says by way of a command is guard the deposit. The very next verse there, verse 14, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep or guard by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. What was that good thing? I think you know. It's the truth. The truth. Timothy, the church is the pillar and ground, the undergirding of the truth. The church is to preserve it. You're a pastor. If you don't keep it, your people aren't. Pass it on intact. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, be strong. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't wimp out like so many others, any name, son, in his epistles. 
Hymenaeus and Alexander. And then at the last he talks about Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And Demas had been a fellow helper to the truth, had been a great comfort to the Apostle Paul. But here at the last even Demas has left. There are a lot of Demases out there. They start out with a bang, and then they turn away. And then he said, suffer hardship like a good soldier in chapter 2, verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Let's be loyal to our great commander. Let's be brave in the face of spiritual danger. Oh, how it's rampantly spreading and coming to us. And then he said in chapter 2, verse 22, flee youthful lusts. Timothy was a young man. His hormones were raging, just like every normal young man. And he says, Timothy, if you give in to your lusts, it'll weaken you. You need to be like Joseph who left his coat in the hands of that wicked woman, Potiphar's wife. He may have lost his coat, but he didn't lose his purity. Handle the truth accurately. That's kind of a gist of the rest of the epistle here. Timothy, you have in your trust the Holy Scriptures that are inspired, that are God-breathed, that are profitable. Handle them with care. Handle them conscientiously. Just preach the Word and leave all the results in God's hand. And if no one stands with you, (laughs) the Lord still will. As he says in chapter 4, verse 17, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me at his first defense. We believe that Paul was in prison twice. Notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Wonderful advice for a young pastor, but also is wonderful advice for us about uh, the criteria for choosing a church and how to pray for your pastor. What did Paul mean by that terse mandate, preach the Word? Well, some of the other things he says surrounding it, amplify it, suggest some points of the outline today. Number one, Paul meant by the command, preach the Word. Let the Word dictate the subject that you choose for preaching. Let the Word dictate the subject. One benefit of preaching expositorily, as you hear from this pulpit, and as our Hispanic folks hear from this pulpit from another source, from Brother Gustavo. You see it on the van there. They're the church that's the expository preaching church. You won't find many Hispanic churches like that. One benefit of preaching expository messages and going verse by verse through the Bible is that no one can accuse you of, of just preaching your pet peeves or having an axe to grind. If all Scripture is inspired, and it is, then as Paul had already told Timothy in chapter 3 in the closing verses there, it's all profitable. It all needs to be proclaimed. In my almost 23 years as pastor of this church, Some of you have been with me all that time. Bless your hearts. 
that in my 23 years, I have never conducted a survey to find out what people want me to preach. I heard about a church that did that out in California a few years ago. And you know what the number one requested subject was? I'm not exaggerating. Potty training. Sorry, I'm not going to be able to give you help there. Although I have had a little experience. But there's no chapter and verse for that. The Apostle Paul did not shun to declare all the counsel of God as he told those elders from Ephesus, the very church that Timothy was pastoring. He, chose those, he, he told those elders at F, from Ephesus at a little place called Miletus in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. It's easy to let other things dictate the agenda. There's such pressure and incentive to be relevant, to contextualize the gospel. You're not going to hear that here. And the churches that do that, the churches that pander to that taste, that contextualize the gospel, they become ridiculously out of date before very long. Once you get off on that kick, that merry-go-round, there's no way to get off. Some of you will remember, although he's rapidly becoming obsolete, not a lot of people even remember who he is, the modernist pastor out in California, Robert Schuller, pastor of the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California. For many years, that church was known as the culturally relevant church. They say everything's up to date in Kansas City. Well, everything was up to date in Garden Grove, California for a while. When Schuller started the church, he went door to door, passing out cards, asking people to write down what they wanted in a church. And then he gave them what they asked for. It didn't take long before that church became an anachronism, obsolete. It's gone today. It had to file bankruptcy. It couldn't keep up with being culturally relevant. Why? The main drawing card was not the Word of God. It was other things, psychology and entertainment and possibility thinking and on and on. And I inevitably lose somebody every time I name a name like that. Folks, Paul named names. You know, whatever you use to draw people, that's what it will take to keep them. If the forthright, unadulterated, systematic preaching and teaching of the Word of God is what attracts people 20 years later, if that's what they're still hearing from the pulpit, it will keep them contented and satisfied and growing. The flagship of the seeker-friendly movement for many years has been Willow Creek Baptist Church up in the Chicago area. I remember Brother Troy telling me this first, but this was way back 2004 or 5. They did a survey in, in, in the church, and they found out that the people who were most disgruntled, dissatisfied, were the people who had been there the, the longest. This was the flagship of the seeker-friendly movement, getting people to come, getting seekers to come to this 20,000-member-plus church. But the ones who were dissatisfied were the ones that were, had been there the longest. They said, we're not getting fed. It was a revelation to the leadership. Let me tell you, if a pastor gives the unadulterated full counsel of the Word of God, people will be fed. Some of you have been here 23 years or longer, and you're still getting fed. 
I'll just tell you, here at Friendship Baptist Church, we don't have a different agenda for baby busters and boomers, and then another one for millennials and Generation X, and another one for Generation Z. I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's a one-size-fits-all thing here at Friendship, because the Bible is always relevant for every age, every generation, every culture. It is the eternal Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. And so I've made it a practice, and I exhort you to do so as well, Thomas. I know you will. Give people what they need, not what they want. Many churches and pastors are pandering to the felt needs of people. And that's the response you'll get from surveys and polls. That's the rationale for what's going on in many professedly evangelical churches across the nation today. For most of the time that people come to worship, they're getting a gospel rock concert. But felt needs are seldom real needs. Felt needs are just symptoms of real needs. And it's not just music. Many people think they need a financial miracle when what they really need is to develop more faith while being content with the basics of life, as we talked about last week, how we can trust God to take care of our needs. Many people imagine that they need a miracle today. They need to be healed. They need to be healthy and active so that they can do more for Christ and they can take care of their family. But God wants them to manifest His grace through suffering and to learn what Paul learned through his trial with a thorn in the flesh, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, to be more sympathetic with others, to be more useful to God. You may be here thinking this morning, Lord, what I need is for you to lift my load. It's just crushing me. But he sees it differently. He sees that your real need is to cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Casting all your care upon him because he careth for you. There may be some that I'm preaching to this morning who believe that you're entitled to pray the prayer of Jabez. A book was written on that years ago. It became a runaway bestseller and financed a lot of stuff going on in Africa. Some of it was good. Some of it was incomplete. But if you pray the prayer of Jabez to enlarge your coast, before you're willing to just brighten the corner where you are, the corner of the world where you are, don't be surprised God doesn't answer. God wants you to fill the room that you're in, and then He'll give you a bigger room. The only way to minister to people's real needs, not felt needs, is to feed their souls with the bread of life, the Word of God. It always speaks to people where they're at. You don't have to worry about being culturally relevant. And it will satisfy them because Jesus alone can satisfy. So let the Word dictate the subject. Be faithful in season and out of season. That's what Paul told the Apostle Paul. I mean, that's what Paul told Timothy. There are times when it's more favorable to preach the Word than at other times. I'm sure Oleg and Lori, our missionaries to Ukraine, would 
be able to attest to this. They've been around long enough that when communism fell, the people of Eastern Europe were starving for the Word of God. They'd been denied for 70 or more years. And we were sending preachers over. Preacher Payne, my predecessor, went over to Romania, preached in a stadium that was packed out, and hundreds made professions. He'd never seen anything like it before. Of course, the cults took advantage of that too. People were starving for the Word of God, and there were just phenomenal results everywhere the gospel was preached. Do I need to tell you it's not that way anymore? Right now, bold, authoritative gospel preaching is out of season in America. In its place, we have a market-driven philosophy of preaching. And if you listen to the pollsters and the religious research people, you'll conclude that uh, churchgoers don't want to be preached to anymore. The polls reveal that their number one need, felt need obviously, the number one need for a church is meaningful relationships. That's number one. Close behind number two is cultural discernment. The need to understand and interpret today's culture. And then you might be surprised what the third one is. It's reverse mentoring. We need to learn from the younger generation. I don't know about you. There are some things I can learn from the younger generation, but there's some things they need to learn. The, the prodigal son represented the younger generation, but when he said, give me my, an advance on my inheritance, we don't need to learn from him. He needs to learn from the father. You want to know my response to that? I'm just going to preach the word anyway. Generation Z needs it just like the baby boomers and the baby busters. Just like those with one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. Brother Thomas, be like Ezekiel. You've been reading through that part of the Bible and teaching it in school lately. Just give God's words to people whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. I'm going to let people judge me to be very quaint and out, outdated and out of touch. But one thing for sure, I want them to know that there's been a prophet among them. And if we wait to give forth the word till the season and the audience are favorable, we're going to renege on our duty. The Bible says way back in the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 4, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. We just need to go ahead and sow and reap anyway. Warren Wiersbe is right when he said, It's easy to make excuses when we need to be making opportunities. I like that. Paul could have easily concluded that the season was not favorable for preaching the gospel in Philippi when he started to do it, and it landed him in jail right away. But instead, he just kept preaching. And all in one night, God gave him the soul of the jailer and the souls of all of his family, and a thriving church was born out of that out-of-season opportunity. 
He was ready for all eventualities. He was instant in season and out of season. Let's let the word dictate the subject. Don't go to a church where pastor just preaches favorites. Hold fast, secondly, to sound doctrine. That's what Paul meant by preach the word. He goes on to say in that pointed second verse there of chapter 2, reprove, or chapter 4, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, teaching. And then he went on to give us a reason in verse 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching. Now, what does Paul mean by sound doctrine or sound teaching? He's referring to the revealed body of truth. As the writer Jude says in the third verse of his epistle, one chapter epistle, it's the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's what is meant. Now remember, that body of revealed truth, at this particular time, it was still being developed, right? The canon of Scripture was not closed. The New Testament was still being written. And so Paul makes reference to that in Again, in chapter 1, verse 13, hold fast to the form, the standard, the pattern of sound words. That which you have heard from me, Timothy. Paul knew that he was giving inspired truth. Not everything Paul wrote is in the Bible, but what God wants us to have is here. Paul knew that he had not received his doctrine from man. He spent some time out there in the deserts of Arabia Jesus revealed himself to him. He didn't get his theology from Peter. The other pillar of the church at Jerusalem, James, was dead. John had not yet written either his gospel or his epistles. The apostle Paul got his teaching from Christ. And the standard is sound doctrine. I urge you, as John does in his epistle that he wrote years later, Judge everything you hear and read by the Word of God. As we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, test the spirits. The word is try in the King James. It means test the spirits whether they are of God. The obvious implication is many of them are not. Now, how do you do that? The answer is be a Berean Christian. That city in northern Greece, along with Thessalonica, Philippi, was an exemplary church, the church founded there. Paul referred to it in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. He said, search the Scriptures. They searched the Scriptures. The, the, the Berean church searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things were so. What things? The things they heard no less than the eminent personage of Paul the apostle preach. They searched the Scriptures. I love Isaiah 8, verse 20. It enjoins us, it says, to the law and to the testimony. And it goes on to say, if anyone speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Please make a note of that. No light in them. We've got evangelicals, even some so-called apologist evangelicals, that are running around saying they're such, because of common grace, because God has revealed himself to people in common grace even before they're saved, that they have something to tell us. God has told them something to tell us. That's nuts. And yet a leading apologist is saying that. 
God didn't say there's some light in those guys. He said there's no light. I'll stick with what God says. Beloved, don't believe something just because it's the consensus among your acquaintances or even in your theological camp. On every question proposed, on every assertion made, let's just develop the spiritual reflex of asking, what does the Bible say? I'm really not concerned about what Dr. Bottlestopper says. Let's proclaim doctrine, the Word, not just Bible stories, as important as they are. And we teach them here to our children, to everyone. The things that happen in the Old Testament are examples for the truth expounded in the New Testament. But we don't just teach Bible stories and and interesting illustrations. I'll never forget as a teenager something. I wish I could forget it. But at my home church in Tennessee, I was a part of the youth group. In fact, my twin brother and I, I think, were officers at that time in the youth group. And we had an early uh, session, a training union type session. That's what they call it. Anybody remember training union? Yeah, okay, that's a dinosaur. I know it. Training union. Well, in training union one Sunday night, we had a, a well-known evangelist speak to us. He was the son of a very famous evangelist. I will not name the name because I think highly of it. And he was a good storyteller like his dad. And so he spoke to the youth group. He spun a long tale. It must have been 30 minutes or more. And finally he ended by saying, and this animal reached up and pulled my leg just like I'm pulling yours. And then he tagged on a little moral to make an excuse for spending so much time in what was supposed to be a sermon. Can I be honest? I don't even remember what the moral was. But I felt cheated. I felt defrauded. We were in church. We were which is the place for the pillar and undergirding of the truth, the place where the word is to be proclaimed, and I've just been regaled with one long story, and not even a true one at that. We've just started up a new year with our Kids for Truth and Life 2.0 and youth group and college group and our children's ministries. If you're involved in that, would you just give me your ear for a moment? Teachers, just give the truth. Give the pure word of God. We've got a lot of kids. I think 25 people in Life 2.0 Wednesday night. That's tremendous. Good number of kids for truth. Those kids are like sponges. They can remember. They're so smart. Their minds are like plastic. Let's give them the word of God. Sometimes people think we've we got to dress it up. We've got to make it more palatable. People's ears are itching for something else. They've been so jaded by entertainment, we've got to do a little entertainment too. We've got to give a little charismatic excitement. I get emails every week from so-called Christian comics, comedians. Want to come to Friendship Baptist Church? 
I delete every one of them. We've fallen victims to market-driven pragmatism. Whatever works, let's use it. The goal is consumer satisfaction. And my question is, what about the author of this book that we profess to love and to proclaim? Are we concerned about whether he's satisfied? There's a big difference between drawing a crowd and having a church. Oh, Jesus do crowds. The Bible uses the plural. Multitudes followed him. Wait a minute. Then he stopped short and he started giving them doctrine about himself and what it means to be identified and united with him in John chapter 6. And the Bible says that they left him and they walked with him no more. They thinned out. You've heard me say it before. They left so quick he could have played checkers on their coattails. That wasn't what they were there for. But we think we got to pander to that crowd. Paul told Timothy, hold fast to sound doctrine. I hope we are represented by the 12 to whom Jesus turned and said, will ye also go away? They're leaving me. They thought they wanted to follow me. But they were just following me for the loaves and the fishes. Are you going to go with them? Thank God for Peter. Boy, he hit the nail on the head that time, didn't he? He stuck his foot in his mouth a whole lot of other times. But he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And I say to you, if you leave Jesus, where are you going to go for your values? Where are you going to go for hope? Where are you going to go for truth? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Preach the Word. What does that mean? Thirdly, it means authoritatively proclaim Bible truth. The word preach there is the Greek word caruso. It means to herald. It's a familiar word in the New Testament. The image conjured up is that of the colonial town crier who would cup his mouth or get a megaphone and say, Hear ye, hear ye. It was commanding. It was imperious. It was authoritative. It demanded an answer. Authoritatively proclaim Bible truth. Now, first of all, I need to say that preaching is different from teaching. That question was asked, Thomas, yesterday at the presbytery. Good question. Preaching involves far more than mere teaching. In fact, Paul distinguished the two in 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you can turn back. In my Bible, just, the print is so small, I can turn, or the page is so big. It's not the print so small. The page is so big, I can just turn back one page. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, when he talks about the gospel in verse 10. He says, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. He distinguishes between preaching and teaching. So what is preaching? Well, preaching is heralding. Caruso, announcing, proclaiming, teaching is explaining and applying the truth. Teaching tells us what is, and preaching tells us what to do about it. The one is indicative, the other is imperative. A faithful pastor like Paul and like he was exhorting Timothy to be will do both. I want you to be taught 
and I want you to be exhorted. Secondly, authoritative preaching is indispensable. We must have it. There's no substitute for it. I mentioned the town crier when he said, hear ye, hear ye. People dropped what they were doing. They gave him their undivided attention. He was doing it in a commanding way. He was saying, listen up, everybody. What I'm about to say is important. It's binding. The Bible says, we had not got to this part in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. That they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he was so flowery and eloquent? No. Because he spoke with authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were as dry as last year's bird's nest. Jesus spoke with authority. And so I don't apologize for speaking assertively and uncompromisingly. I hope you realize that though I've preached thousands of times from this pulpit, Every time I get up here, I'm dealing with issues of life and death, heaven and hell, judgment and mercy, salvation and damnation, Christ and Satan. Those are weighty issues. So much hinges upon people understanding and responding. And God has chosen by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's still true. I'll be honest, I see it. Some people come, somebody invited them, and I appreciate you inviting others, but they never come back. Some people do do not like authoritative preaching. It's too strong. It's too bold. It's too dogmatic. They would rather celebrate doubt and uncertainty. They really think that's humble. They think that's true humility. They'd rather have just a big roundtable discussion and get everybody's opinion and pool everybody's ignorance. Instead of one person get up and preach the eternal verities, unchanging truth of God's revelation that calls for nothing less than saying, thus saith the Lord. That's not in vogue. What did Paul mean when he said to Timothy, preach the word? Well, fourthly, and I must hasten, he, he meant to use Scripture for its intended purpose. Please refer back to that majestic uh, closing of chapter 3 in verse uh, 16. He says, all Scripture is given by inspiration. It's breathed out, literally Inspiration of God, and it is profitable. It's all profitable for, and he lists these things, doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, the fourfold purpose. That is pretty much summarized also as a threefold purpose in um, chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Here it is, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That's where the teaching comes in. Could I briefly just talk about those three things individually? Reproof, first purpose for preaching the Word. It's the Greek eleko. It's the same word Paul used in verse 16 when he's, of chapter 3 when he said that Scripture was profitable for reproof. It speaks of correcting behavior or false doctrine. 
It is to be distinguished from the word that follows it, rebuke, reproof, and rebuke are not the same. The mind must be convinced that reproof speaks of correcting the mind. The mind must be convinced if the heart is to be convicted. Can I say that again? The mind must be convinced if the heart is to be convicted. I'll be honest, I've listened to some very stirring sermons. I mean, it made you want to charge hell with a squirt gun. You want to do something. You move so emotionally. But after it was all over, I had to ask, what did I learn? What did I really understand? What did I learn? Sometimes it was little or nothing. Oh, there was a lot of emotion. Some get a lot of shouting. I've been in some shouting churches. I've done deputation in some shouting churches. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. As long as when you hit the ground, you walk straight and live for God. But some people get so inoculated with that, they don't think they've been to church without it. Bible preachers must inform people about what they must do differently to please God. If there is conviction in our heart, but no remedy, we place a heavy burden of guilt on people. And God told Ezekiel in chapter 13, verse 22 of that book, He said, don't make sad hearts that I have not made sad. And I think about that a lot. Sometimes people need a certain truth that I'm preaching about, but somebody else is of a sensitive, just over-scrupulous conscience, and, and not intentionally, but it happens. I make the heart sad that God has not made sad. I don't take pleasure in that. Reprove and then rebuke. This is the Greek epitomao. It comes from two roots that together mean to put a tax on. Isn't that interesting? Can't help but smile and thinking sometimes the faithful preacher is about as popular as an IRS agent, right? And this word is commonly used in the Gospels. Jesus said in Luke 17 verse 3, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. When the faithful pastor rebukes with the word, he's aiming for the heart. His goal is to bring the erring one to genuine repentance. Rebuking may be a a negative use of the word, but as James tells us in chapter 5, verse 20 of his epistle, it saves a soul from death and hides a multitude of sins. It has a positive outcome, amen. Afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So while reproving highlights the sinfulness of sin, rebuking, there's a difference, rebuking emphasizes the sinfulness of the sinner. And we've all got sin in our lives. I don't care how long you've been saved. Sin must be dealt with, whether it be the sin of the unsaved or the sin of believers. So instead of scratching, itching ears, the faithful pastor must reprove and rebuke with all long suffering, yes, and teaching, patience. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be patient with all men. 
reprove, rebuke, then the word exhort. This is the Greek parakaleo. It means to call near, to beseech, to entreat, to pray. It's the positive use of the Word of God, the building up, the encouraging. Sometimes a preacher needs to call people out. But then after he's done that, he's called to come alongside an erring brother in love and encourage him with the Word. That's the way Paul did when he rebuked that brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who committed incest with his father's wife. That man needed to be rebuked. But then he told in the second epistle, he says, all right, he's, he's repented. Restore him now. Give words of exhortation and encouragement. Don't, don't kick him while he's down. We need to be ready to give a word in due season to him that is weary. That's what the tongue of the learned will do. I tell you, this Paul Swan song is majestic. It's fabulous. It's, it's peerless. What an epistle. Yes, the shadow of the guillotine is cast over the Apostle Paul, but what, what a way to go out for God's faithful servant as he awaits his upward call. As Paul finishes with, with his usual subscription like he does here, grace be with you. Sometimes he said, grace and peace be with you. Amen. And he hands the scroll to Tychicus, who took it to Timothy. He couldn't help but be anxious. I said this. We don't, if we don't appreciate this, we don't, we don't understand this. We won't appreciate the second letter to Timothy. How would Timothy receive this letter? Would he cave to the pressure that he was facing? Or would he be willing to share in the reproach for Christ that his mentor and father in the faith was so nobly bearing up under? Would he be ready and willing to suffer affliction according to the power of God, as Paul told him in chapter 1? Can't you imagine that the suspense in Paul's heart was almost more than he could bear? Would Timothy prove to be another Hymenaeus? Another Alexander? Another Demas? Well, I'm glad the Bible gives us an answer. Maybe you've never noticed this before, but would you turn to Hebrews chapter 13? Just keep, keep turning to the back of the Bible if you're in 2 Timothy, okay? Hebrews chapter 13, but don't turn very fast. Look at verse 23. Even if Paul is not the author of Hebrews, and he may well be, this is, we know which Timothy is being referred to here. Verse 23, know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty with whom if he comes shortly, I will see you. Paul's heartfelt letter and prayers, I believe, paid off. This verse teaches us that, and it was written not long after Paul wrote 2 Timothy, it reveals that Timothy had been in prison, no doubt for his faith. He wasn't a criminal. He hadn't done anything else wrong. He was but he'd been recently released. He had proved to be not a coward, but a fearless confessor and hardened soldier of the one true God. Paul breathed a huge sigh of relief. Well, let's bring it down to where we live. What is our message, as you've heard me say before, for this mess age? And it is. 
It hasn't changed. Preach the word. The time when men by and large will no longer endure sound doctrine is upon us. The popular preacher, the one that people flock to hear these days, for the most part, is now the ear tickler, the massage artist, the back scratcher, the one who doesn't create any ripples, the one who distances himself from those right-wing legalistic fundamentalists. I know whereof I speak. Not the one who without fear or favor declares all the counsel of God preaches the word, the whole word, and nothing but the word. So I say this to you as I close, not only for Thomas's sake, though I told him yesterday, I want you here today, make sure you hear this message. He is. But I say this for all of us. I quote a great preacher He's not as well known as other pastors of his generation in England, but a great preacher by the name of Roland Hill. He was a contemporary of uh, Whitfield. He was kind of a disciple of Whitfield. He had a settled pastorate in England, but he also took to the open air as Whitfield did, and as Whitfield uh, helped him to do. And he said this, this great, powerful preacher. Rash preaching disgusts. Timid preaching leaves poor souls fast asleep, and there are many souls asleep in churches across America. And then when I say bold preaching is the only preaching that is owned of God. That's what Paul was telling Timothy to do. That's not in vogue right now. So what are we going to do? And who are we going to go to listen to? Somebody that gives men what they want? Or somebody that gives men what they need? Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us an appetite for the pure Word of God. Please forgive us where we've had itching ears. Please restore our faith in the power of the preached Word. Help us to read what the Bible says about itself. The Word makes us wise unto salvation. It brings conviction in the hands of the Holy Spirit. It alone can regenerate us, cause us to be born again. It makes us holy. It causes us to be willing to suffer affliction and bear reproach for Jesus Christ. Lord, as we send Thomas and Laura Bloomling forth, may they be imbued with power from on high, with a passion for the lost, but at the same time with a holy indifference to whether Thomas's preaching pleases men and tickles ears and gets him fame and demand. Lord, I pray for this young man, and we'll pray more prayers tonight for him. Fortify this young Timothy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.